Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Friends Show. I am your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and today I'm joined by Saragon, and only Saragon. Sara, how are you doing? No, I'm well, thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, very good to have you here. Many of our colleagues are unfortunately occupied today, so it's just going to be the two of us chatting about things. So we may go a bit short, we may be the same length as normal. Let's just see how the episode goes. Uh, but let us start off on this day of... Can I just, uh, if I may make a self-indulgent aside, this has been a very strange week for summer weather <laughs> in Chattisburg. <laughs> Can I just say something about that? Um, yes. In, for anyone who believes that it's climate change, uh, my um, professional opinion is it is not, because November can be like this. I mean, I, I remember, I will never forget a 2nd of November a Friday, we had guests from Austria, pouring with rain, freezing cold. I was wearing boots, and they were saying it's it's warmer in Vienna. And I think the thing is one forgets this can happen in November, and that's because winter hasn't ended in the Cape. Yeah. And, yeah, no, that's, and of course, so they always think it's that bad weather. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, so. I, I, I've done my, my inner Greta Thunberg. Indeed. Uh, as things return to normal, let us talk about um, the first item today, and that is the, there was this opinion piece by William Gomeda, who is singing the praises of the country of Poland and the dramatic change that the country has undergone since ending communist rule in 1989. So when uh, communism collapsed in Poland in 1989, the economy was in an absolutely terrible state. Their unemployment was at 16%, which, just as an aside, uh, South Africa wishes that it had an, an unemployment at 16%. Um, what is ours now? 42, 43, something like that. Uh, and it was experiencing inflation of 344%. Government institutions were pretty collapsed. There was no history of democracy or rule of law for many centuries. The country was in a total state. Uh, one in 10 people went to university, which is similar-ish, I think, to, to South Africa's figure um, currently. Uh, and things were just not great. But Poland adopted a whole bunch of really uh, great policy ideas. Um, they invested a lot in human capital. They produced today a lot of engineers just behind Germany. Uh, they privatized many, many state-owned enterprises because, of course, being a communist country, you know, sort of every major uh, business was was state-owned, state and those were all privatized. However, they didn't just sort of all rush them out uh, in one go like uh, was done in, in Russia and Ukraine and a lot of other Eastern European countries, but they sort of did it piecemeal. They gave lots of shares to people who worked in those companies. Um, uh, they gave lots of shares to, to people who had contractual obligations to the privatized ent entity. Um, they sold privatization certificates at a low price to the public, and 96% of people who were eligible bought them. So they sort of really kind of spread the, the SOEs to the public. Uh, and they sort of did this in a measured way rather than all overnight. And um, they also adopted a, a sort of generally low-tax, uh, um, economically free market model. And the results speak for themselves. Um, unemployment today is something like 
three uh, percent in the country, which is of course fantastic. That's pretty close to as low as you can get. And the country experienced GDP economic growth of 381 percent between 1990 and 2018, uh, and it's only grown since then. There, it's got low uh, levels of crime. It's got good public services. It has a pretty democratic system. It's had changes of government. Now there have been some fears that that was being eroded a little bit under the rulership of the Lord Justice Party in Poland. Um, and interestingly, Poland has actually, far more than South Africa, politicized its reserve bank. But because they had so much good economic will behind them um, uh, through all of these other positive policy reforms, uh, Poland was very successful in avoiding any huge calamities. And so, there, uh, you know, inflation rate today is something like 8%, which is higher than many other EU countries, but not the sort of calamitous levels of places like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, or even themselves in the 1980s, uh, where it was at 300%. Or even Turkey, where inflation, I think, hit some in the hundreds relatively recently. Um, so it is a fantastic situation. Now, Poland is, I think, the 21st largest economy on the planet. Sara, I think this is a really great example of what a South African government could do to regenerate the country, particularly in a post-ANC era. Um, this is what opposition parties could look towards implementing. Mm. Do you agree with me? What, what do you make of the success of, of Poland? I think Poland's quite fascinating. I mean, because you know, will know more than I that Poland has a, a long, turbulent and uh, uh, contested history. I mean, at one time it was uh, the dominant player in the region. Um, parts of Poland have both been virtually an empire and been on, on the receiving end, subjugated by other empires. And uh, it, it is really your sort of middle Europe writ large. Everything literally kind of came and went through Poland and the Soviets, the Russians, the Imperial Russians, the Germans, almost, the Austrians. Almost every, the Germans, the Nazis, everyone went through Poland at some point. And Poland, to a large extent, I think I would have said 50 years ago, had a, had a, had a reputation of being probably, um, it, it was under the communist yoke. It was at the same time a, a religious country, um, um, almost entirely Catholic as far as I, as, as far as I can recall, uh, very stratified. So you had an very high, you know, very stratified levels of nobility, very little in the middle, and then a great deal of poverty and peasantry at the bottom. And and everyone got caught in between in, in between those 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 things. So Poland is always, I mean, in America. You know, in the same way that we used to tell Thunder jokes, and remember those once upon a day, you're probably too young. You know. In America, you used to tell Polish jokes and Irish jokes. You know, the, the poor countries, the the, the, the the misbegottens who fled oppression and starvation and just generally being treated by whichever authority was in power at the time. That, that was uh, Poland. There's still quite a lot of uh, Polish jokes in the UK and the EU because you know, in the immediate aftermath of, of uh, Poland's liberation, it, um, you know, many immigrants from those countries went to work in, in European countries, although that has slowed in recent years um, significantly because things have improved so much in Poland. But, the, but there's obviously something in the in for the Poles in the freedom because, I mean, initially the people who would have gone west into Europe to work, now that they could, were doing pretty much mostly jobs that 
the English or the French or whatever it is didn't want to do, um, the more blue collar works. Um, a lot of construction, etc. And I, I think to some extent that has changed. So many of the the poles in the West are highly educated professionals, etc. Now, um, but what it what it does go to show, just to pick up on that point, is that the ability to move easily across west and back has not done Poland any harm whatsoever. So you can imagine in the, in the sort of early decades of let's call it, of freedom, um, the remittances home were probably incredibly valuable. Right, they, um, they, they experienced yeah. genuine brain drain like we have. Yeah. Um, and yet it didn't ultimately hold them back because they made the right choices. Uh, as as uh, William Gomedia points out in this thing, you know, Poland doesn't have amazing, fantastic natural resources. It's not like South Africa where it's imbued with the greatest treasure trove of mineral resources in the world. And yet it had this massive economic growth. It became a sort of a, a brain-based economy in a lot of ways, um, which I think really shows, you know, we often talk about oh, Africa is so rich, it's got all these minerals and that kind of thing. But actually, at the end of the day, having cool stuff in the ground or having fertile fields or whatever does you very little good if you don't make the right policy choices. And well, well, that's, right that's exactly it. And I mean, the ANC could really learn from that from a whole number of countries. And that is that it's it's all pretty useless stuff, depending on how you exploit it. Um, and what I found interesting with Poland is that, I mean, Poland economically 20, 30 years ago would have been in the bottom of those lovely sort of graphic tables of sort of not very successful countries. Uh, it would be down there with all the other Soviet satellites. Um, but as you say, it's now 21st in the world, and it's a, become a really big player in the EU. And it's what's interesting about that is it's taken that sort of it's an anti-immigration standard. It, it is a fairly homogeneous country. Does not want the the multiculturalism that the the that Western Europe is grappling with. The, I think pr probably one of the things about the depth of Polish history um, and the fact that they did things better for 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 Poland than the Russians did, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, is they learnt a few lessons from history. That was the one thing, and the other thing is that they they the what's fascinating is that they are not a country built on the biggest industry of all, which is corruption. Um, because yes. no doubt, the bigger the corruption, the the more likely that your country is to to fail to to grow sufficiently and to succeed, as you say, with all the mineral wealth in the world and with all the benefits. In the world, I mean, if we were, to, if if just the existence of mineral and similar benefits uh, was enough to make a, success, a country prosperous, we'd be flying. Exactly. Um, but there's uh, probably and, something and, in, the, in the personality of the of the poles compared to, say, the Russians or the Belarusians or whatever it may be that just accounts for that for that ethic. No, there's, uh, I think, I think it's, you know, <laughs> I think that what you said about how they've learned the lessons of history is a really good point. Um, particularly, you know, the problems of state, state ownership and state control, having suffered under it uh, uh, for so many years. Um, and on the democratic front, you know, there's been this kind of extreme amount of, of, of fear and hand wringing in the EU uh, about uh, a backsliding of democracy in in Poland um, and, and in some of these Central European countries. Uh, and yet, you know, 
I would argue that they've actually, you know, and there are definitely, I think, reasons why those concerns appeared um, because of some of the actions of the ruling Law and Justice Party, which won uh, leadership over the country, I think back in 2015 was when they took mm -hmm. control of government. Yeah. Um, and yet, despite that, before that, Poland had a very robust history already in its early years of, of kind of changes of government and fractious politics. Mm. But subsequently, um, the election was just won by the opposition in uh, the uh, so-called civic platform, as they call themselves, and their allies. Mm. Um, and what's very interesting also about Poland is how they, the, the, the left, broadly defined as a political entity, is only like 15% of the electorate. Mm which is quite different, I think, from many other countries in the world. I, th I, th I think the problem for the EU um, with Poland is not just the, the anti-migrant um, stance and the firm stance of that, but it, al it is also a key, it is a key country next to Russia, Ukraine. So it, it has a sort of geopolitical importance, which the EU can't ignore. Um, and the other thing is that the EU is largely railed against the sort of things that it is guilty, that it is actually guilty of. And that is a, 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 a situation of the, the, what the elites want, think, and do is what dominates. And what the people actually want, think, and do is given short shrift. And I think that probably, every way you want to describe it, that is what makes Poland increasingly powerful and the EU look um, increasingly sort of snippy and and, and resentful. Um, in other words, what opponent seems is, is applied logic, common sense. Um, is it, all, of, all, of, all of those good things and, and what the EU is trying to make out is that uh, Poland is a sort of populist country, whatever, and, and they don't mean populist in the popular will sense, they mean populist in the right of centre sense. Um, and I think you use, it's, it's going to be an interesting challenge for a lot of the orthodox, the sort of left-wing undemocratic orthodoxies of the EU. Hmm. And uh, the last thing to mention is that uh, Poland has, and we'll see whether the opposition continues with it, although I suspect they probably will, um, has embarked on a massive military expansion program uh, in the wake of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so uh, I believe of all the democratic countries in the world, Poland will be spending the highest percentage of its GDP on defense in the next couple of years, something like 4.5%, mm. which so will only make it more influential. I was just, just going to say, it's going to make it more more powerful in, in NATO. Exactly. Anyway, um, interesting lessons to be learned from abroad there. Uh, let's move on to our next one. And this is a survey from uh, uh, Stats SA, which was asking South Africans, you know, have you used this government service or that government service in the last year? Um, and what they've found is that there's been a little bit of a reduction in the number of people who say they're using government services uh, from from uh, when they last did the survey back in 2019, 2020. Um, around 38% of individuals surveyed age 16 and older used public transport services Around 32% say that they use public clinic services. And this is the most crazy of all the stats, but it makes sense. Only 18% say that they use the South African police service. Now, sure, not everyone is a victim of crime every single year. But this is a very crime-ridden society. And I think we all know, you know, you compare us to a country like the US or, or the UK, or really anywhere um, uh, with a, with a well-functioning state. And people call the police, this always shocks me, at the drop of a hat. 
you know, oh, the neighbors are making too much noise, I'm gonna call the police. Now, I'm not saying South Africa should be like that. But the fact that less than a fifth of South Africans are using the police in a year is kind of crazy if you think about it. Well, um, I, you know, it, it, it's in topics, it's like going from, the, as my grandmother would say, from the sublime to the core blimey. Um, because it's generally, you know, a general point is that is one primary function of the state vis-a-vis -vis its citizenry, and that is safety and security. And it's almost like we've inverted that, that pyramid. I mean, can you imagine? Your neighbours, you hear screaming and shouting, gunshots. Your reaction is, well, help collect up the body and let's go and bury somebody. Um, don't worry about the police. I mean, that's, that's virtually the state we've got to because um, all the services that would support prosecution are somewhere to backed up to the next century and non-existent. I mean, it, it, it is so bad. And I, and I think our, and you can, you can get a sense of, of the devotion to his job. I think Gayle was one of the six ministers who went to watch the rugby final at our expense. So, <laughs> you know, not to mention the bumblebee that is our whatever he is. No, he isn't our. He's he's the ANC. Uh, yeah, he's whatever. he's not in government anyway, is he? Um, he's a, the secretary general of the ANC. Yes. Yeah. Um, Who, uh, and, and and maybe we should get onto that in a second of <laughs> desperately trying to claim credit for the Springbok success. Uh, yeah, yeah but, I think. I mean that that is such a. An indictment. It's almost. It's. It's almost. It almost says it all about everything else. If you know what I mean. Um, of course, of course, pe people are going to stop using services that are no good. People are going to give up on services, even those that they need because they can't get anywhere. Um, we've all gone through it to a greater or lesser extent. The more privileged amongst us, the least privileged amongst us. If there is an alternative, we will seek that alternative, whether that be a private service. Or just be, be making ourselves self-sufficient in in one, any way we can. Um, it's it, it's uh, if you could frame it as a case of this was South Africa, this is where we're going. This would be it. It's the, the failure to use the public sector if possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so many people. Uh, the only reason they will ever interact with the police is either because something truly horrific and horrendous has happened, like a, like a murder or something, or it'll be because uh, they need to make an insurance claim. <laughs> and otherwise, well, people time, away. I was going to I was going to say, and then I realised, unless somebody, who's, preferably who's been murdered, is a celebrity. But even that's not true, because look at, what, nine years since Senza Mwiwe was murdered? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Being Even being rich and famous doesn't seem to protect you yeah. in SA. Um, okay, let us uh, move on to our next story. And this is the African Growth and Opportunity Area, uh, or AGOA as it's more commonly known, is the sort of free trade agreement that the US has with a whole bunch of countries across Africa. And basically, it allows us to sell a variety of products to the US without tariff barriers, so it's very beneficial to us also means they get cheaper products from Africa. Uh, it, the idea is kind of to expand U.S. influence and also trade links with uh, various countries in the African continent. And there's been a lot of fear that South Africa is in danger of being kicked out of a go. And now 
we can get into how that doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to happen, at least at the moment. Um, but AGOA, uh, South Africa is also, I think, I, the, by far the main beneficiary from AGOA. Something like 80% of all trade done through the AGOA framework is through South Africa, not through all these South African countries. Now, part of that is just because our economy is so much bigger than uh, many other countries in Africa. Um, but anyway, the AGOA Forum is uh, uh, taking place in Nazareth at the moment. Um, and there are a number of trade delegations from across the African continent and the Americans. I think Ibrahim Patel gave a speech there yesterday. Uh, and while all of this is going on, the US has already decided that it is going to remove a couple of countries from AGOA. Um, the Central African Republic, Uganda, Gabon, and Niger. Um, those are all countries which have, uh, with the exception of Uganda, have had a coup recently, um, or an unstable government, uh, and a, a military government that is relatively friendly towards Russia. Um, the stated reason for why they are excluding Uganda is for abuse of human rights, particularly with relations to, to uh, same-sex relationships and, and gay people. Um, Interestingly, though, while it does look like the pressure to kick South Africa out of AGOA has lessened and it looks like they're probably not going to do it, um, this is not going kind of down without a fight. So the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, I think that is the name of it, James Risch, who's a senator from Idaho, Republican senator, um, has written a letter to Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and... Uh, South African ambassador complaining about South Africa's continued inclusion in AGOA and um, uh, the hosting of the AGOA summit in Johannesburg. Uh, he lists a number of reasons for it. Most of them are to do with our government's, um, what he says is obvious support for, for both Russia and Hamas in uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. And he cites Naledi Pandor's call with Hamas uh, that allegedly that, that took place where it's disputed. Naledi Pandor says that she just was discussing humanitarian aid with Hamas, whereas Hamas says that uh, she congratulated them on their heroic strike against the Israelis or something like that. Um, but anyway, uh, there, there still seems to be quite a lot of political pressure on the U.S. government to exclude us from AGO. Now, you know, are we actually going to be excluded? I don't think so. But, uh, Sarah, the, the one thing that... Um, is not mentioned here is the fact that South Africa is not uh, is is you know cracking down on property rights and you know only supposed to be included in the Goa if you have respect for property rights and other human rights as well. What do you make of all this? Well, let's put it this way: given the fact that we've done everything to annoy the Americans, from Lady R to our, our voting record in the United Nations, um, to the, the current conflict, the fact that we are very friendly with every polecat country in the world only, pretty much, um, Cuba, Venezuela, China, Russia, Iran. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's like what more could we possibly do to piss off the Americans? It, it, I'm not sure there's anything possible other than the fact that I'm assuming the reason they're keeping us in there and we weren't meant to be there in the first place because we weren't actually poor enough to be to fall under the Ago banner, is they see us as some sort of bulwark against, you, you know, that we, they must keep favour with us because of our relations with Russia and China. They, 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 they want to try and head off that influence to some extent. Um, other than that, I don't. I think if, if there are sort of ten rules that you have to obey to, in order to be a member of Ago, I would imagine 
that we're probably in the same category as Gabon. We probably don't obey any of them, least of all property rights. Um, so there's, there's no ostensible reason in terms of a go itself, to my to my understanding, that would actually make it other than that that that, that influence. Um, and I suspect uh, the South African government probably understands this that as long as it can sort of play off its relationship, its non-aligned relationship with Russia and China and the despots of the world against the threat of making those relationships sweeter and cozier at the expense of Russia, sorry, at the expense of America, that's why we largely remain in. I mean, obviously, if, if it were up to me, I'd kick us out. And a lot of people commenting on the economic side have said, look, it is actually not that big a deal for South Africa. Um, which I, conc I, I haven't looked at the issue um, significantly enough. But I saw, I think it was in the same article we're talking about, that the wine industry exports 10 billion rands worth of wine to America per annum. That's not to be sneezed at, not by any stretch. Yeah. In fact, yeah. if you're managing to do that, we should be creating a market that, for the wine industry, for example, that, can, that should just grow. Um, the, you 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 have to say that if there's one single-minded element in the relationship between South Africa, the, the government, and the American government in Goa, it's that we're doing everything to persuade them to chuck us out and assuming that we have enough geopolitical relevance to not to be not to not to be thrown out. I think that they probably were going to throw us out until Ramaphosa made this big sort of uh, song and dance about suddenly making nice with the Americans and then also. Uh, uh, there was that speech about how we really know, guys, we really are not aligned. Please trust us. Um, just before the BRICS summit was being harvested. Uh, but, you know, I think it's at least partly due to a go that, uh, that, that the United States is, is what it usually is our second or third biggest trading partner, just behind China and Germany. Um, so it's definitely a relationship one doesn't want to muck up. Um, okay. Let us move on. So our next story. Um, this is, I think, I think, yeah, let's end with this one. Um, we've been seeing the whole week, the absolute joy and celebration and jubilation of South Africans across the country about our winning of the World Cup. Now, we talked a little bit about it on Monday, about how, you know, the, the, the success of the Springboks shows many of the ways that South Africa could be succeeding. It shows us what we could do, that there is excellence in this country, that non-racialism does work, um, all these other things. Um, but it has been really, I think, to me at least, heartwarming to see just how many South Africans, kind of from everywhere that you can possibly imagine, have really embraced the Springboks and our win. Uh, so I was reading, you know, there have been a whole bunch of stories about this. I know the, the Springboks were traveling around Joburg yesterday, and I think they, were also, they might have also been in Pretoria. Um, people were watching the live streams. My, my fiance was watching the live stream of it, and uh, there were huge crowds, lots of people cheering. They went through Soweto, and the news has been writing all these pieces, interviewing people. And there was this great little story here with this guy called um, Duduzi Mokopa. He's a uh, 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 just an ordinary guy, lives in Soweto. He said he would have 
he wouldn't have missed the tour, the Springboks tour through Soweto for nothing. He was carrying his South African flag that he originally bought to support Bafana Bafana in their first World Cup tournament in France 25 years ago. He said, quote, I'm so happy that we have won and many people doubted them, but I didn't give up. The same way I didn't give up on them in 2019, I also knew they were going to win this time around. When I see them, I'd be very happy. I will be waving this flag. I bought this flag for Bafana Bafana back in 1998 and I still have it fresh. I knew I didn't waste the money when I bought it. And that little story, I think, is, is you can actually draw a lot from it about how it's kind of a symbol for hope in South Africa in general. Um, you know, that we have this incredible amount of, of, of sort of goodwill and energy moving through the 90s, things that deteriorated but peaked somewhere in the mid-2000s. Um, and we've been in, stuck in this horrific rut ever since. And it was quite interesting watching our captain, Sia Khaleesi, speaking you know, to crowds and things with uh, President Robert Bozo next to him, where he said South Africa should use its diversity more, which is, I think, quite an ambiguous statement. You can interpret in a lot of different ways. But, um, Sarah, what do we make of all this? Well... Judging by the the occasions I've seen him, which was at the world at the final itself, and subsequently at one of these sort of rara get get-togethers, I think Khaleesi's making a very strong point about the failure, what a failure the government is is being to South Africans, and uh, that the success of the rugby team is is just but a a, a, a little chink of light in the in, in the whole thing, um, to give us something to go. We don't think that. South Africa is great, a great country because the Springboks won. But what the spring, the Springboks are emblematic of something. They're not, they're not, they're, they're not sort of proof of 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 the management of the country. In fact, if anything, the opposite. And I think he was essentially saying that, and that is basically that. And he kept reiterating hard work, dedication, support, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All those good things that we can do really, really well. Except as long as the government's not doing them, we can do them really, really well. Um, and, I mean, a couple of observations from this is I did see some police. I saw some police driving motorcycles ahead of the bus. So we've got police somewhere, out there somewhere. Um, the other thing was the our minister – no, again, he's not our minister. He's the ANC Secretary General in his bumblebee yeah. tracksuit. Um, and he said today, I don't have in front of me, but he said something along the lines of um, the spring box or the glue that holds the country together and the government is what made the glue. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is superb. This is just superb, delusional teletubby. <laughs> and what, 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 more, what more can we say? And then the final thing, and please feel to fill in all the blanks, is the what was you know obviously the more the the uh, cup went on the more the guys selling t-shirts and flags by the side of the road their their lifespan on what would be a temporary employment project extended and extended and extended but it even went beyond this beyond sunday beyond saturday beyond sunday because they could still sell sorry they could still sell until the last bus had rolled through the last dorp in south africa there was still a chance of people buying flags and stuff. And ah, wonderful. South Africans, yes. private citizens doing business. What could be better? Yeah, I think I think that's what's been so interesting about this is, is just how um, 
you know, and we've talked this whole week about this, about how the government has been really desperate to sort of get some reflected glory from the Springboks, uh, which is, you know, an institution that the ANC in particular has had this quite antagonistic relationship with. Um, after 1995 and Mandela's embrace of them, uh, they, you know, there was this kind of deep-seated hostility towards the Springboks. There's been these attempts to kind of change the emblem and, you know, criticisms of the Springbok rugby as being some sort of bastion of whiteness or, or some other nonsense like that. Um, and now seeing, you know, it as being one of these cases of excellence uh, shining through in uh, amidst why everything else is, is a failure and seeing it being genuinely embraced by South Africans, as I said, from across every sort of race and class and religion desire, uh, divide that you could possibly draw, um, has really, I think, shaken up the ANC because it sort of shows that the country is not quite the one that they imagine or that they tell us uh, that we live in. Yeah. Um, and and that that must be a little bit terrifying because, yeah. uh, you know, if you mobilize that feeling and that force, the ANC's sort of divisive racial politics um, could really come tumbling down. I think in a, in a very serious way. Well, well, I think I think the I mean I read some business piece about you know we mustn't put too much store by a business person in store by the spring box and this. First of all, we're not that stupid. No one out there thinks that our problems are solved. Yes, this uh, is no not the end of my shedding. <laughs> yeah, there's a joke about that. Probably haven't got time. Um, that's that's the way. So people are not stupid. They don't think the government did anything to make it to make, to, to to breed the success. Um, they know we 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 know this, and that's probably the most important: is the fact that nobody thinks that the box did it any through anyone other than themselves and their support and their trainers, etc. It is not the government and it, and they were not so stupid as to somehow think that it is. And that I think is the and and and, and also after essentially over two decades of professional governmental race baiting you know suddenly it's not yeah, to see it to see it suddenly all melt away. Racial difference. <laughs> Sorry? Exactly. To see it sort of all melt away, um, yeah. just kind of in an instant of triumph, is is really fascinating. Uh, anyway, um, we've actually gone long, so thank you very much for listening. We hope that you found the show interesting. We will, of course, be back next week uh, with another show, another Daily Friend show. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend, and cheers. <laughs>